All right. I'm excited to get to share with you today what I believe that the Lord has, has uh, put on my heart. You know, one of the things that we don't need, at least I don't need, is another sermon. The internet is full of sermons and sermons and sermons. We really need to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. I don't want to bring something in my head to your head. I, I want to bring something in my heart to your heart so we can connect with God's word. His word is, is, is spirit and it is life. So we want to engage together. And I want to read a um, long text, but it's an important text to get to where we're going. And it's found in Luke chapter 24, verse number 13. And here's the setting. There's been the crucifixion. Jesus has died on a cross. Three days have passed. The rumor mill is going that they can't find the body of Jesus. And we find these two guys. One, we don't know the name. The other is Cleopas. And they're on a seven-mile walk back home after these bewildering events that's probably left them pretty disappointed. And we're going to pick up the story right here in Luke 24, 13, as they're on the way home, and then somebody comes alongside and accompanies them that they don't know who it is yet, but we get this story right here. So Luke 24, verse 13, I want to read it. You can follow along on the screen right in front of you, and then we're going to pray and just ask the Spirit of God to help us this morning. Luke 24, 13, and behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things which had taken place. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you are walking? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priest and our rulers delivered him to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it is the third day since these things happened. But also some women among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the woman also had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish men, and slow of heart to believe, and all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses, with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he were going farther. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us. For it is getting toward evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and breaking it, he began giving it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road? 
while he was explaining the scriptures to us. Let's pray. Father, we desire for our hearts to burn within us this morning. We desire, Jesus, for you by the Spirit to, Lord, interpret your words for us. Lord, we're not here just to gain a cerebral understanding of theological matters. We're here to engage you, Jesus, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I know, God, right now, Lord, you are with us. Wherever two or more gathered, you're in our midst. Lord, whether we're sitting in a car or whether we're at home or whether we're still lying in bed or on the sofa, some of us are out on the front porch sitting in a chair enjoying the beautiful day. I'm asking you, Jesus, Lord, to engage our hearts right now with your powerful word. Your words are spirit and they are life. And as Billy prayed a moment ago, let all hopelessness, let all fear, let all anxiety, let every thought or imagination in our natural mind be brought low and taken captive to the obedience of Jesus right now, Lord, that we can hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church, Lord, and saying to us as a spiritual family, and saying to us as individuals, and Lord, you would weave all that together, Lord. And even during this season, you would continue to build your church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We love you and honor you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for praying. So I want you to, I want you to put yourself in these guys' shoes for a few minutes this morning. Put yourself in the shoes of Cleopas, just for a moment. It's easy for us to read this passage because we know the whole story. We got the 2020 hindsight. We know everything that happened before, during, and after these events, but these guys didn't know that. So just, just for just a few minutes, put yourself in his shoes just for a second. He was obviously a follower of Jesus. This man had looked into the eyes of the Messiah himself. He perhaps was like the other disciples that he left his job, he left his family to follow this man named Jesus. He joined an unpopular cohort who were all following a rogue rabbi in the land, probably not so popular. This man witnessed for a year, maybe two years, miracle after miracle after miracle being performed by Jesus. He heard sermon after sermon from Jesus about a coming kingdom, a soon coming kingdom that was on the way. Now just imagine for a second, if you're Cleopas in that moment, put yourself in his shoes. No doubt he is thinking, man, this new kingdom is coming. I've heard the other disciples talking about it. I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder if there's something in this for me. Perhaps he remembered the words found in John 14, 12, when Jesus said, for the works that I do, you also are all going to get to do because I am going to my Father. Man, no doubt there's excitement in his, in his own soul. And then came the day what we call the triumphal entry. It's the day that we're in right now. We call it Palm Sunday. It's the day that Jesus came into Jerusalem. The streets were full of shouts on that day. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He came in with authority and the palm branches being laid on the ground. Can you imagine the excitement of all the disciples during that time? Oh, it's the, it is the fulfillment of all of our dreams and all of our expectations is fixing to happen. Certainly their excitement bubbled over when one of the first places Jesus went was right into the temple. 
And he went in like a roaring lion to cleanse the temple of all the money changers. And, and he would declare that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. Man, maybe Cleopas was thinking the time is finally here. The time is finally here. Most of us would have thought, if you were just like him in that day, that the oppressive Roman Empire was about to be kicked out of Jerusalem. He had interpreted the world events around the person of Jesus, that things are getting ready to happen, and maybe he's going to be a part of it. Giddy with excitement. It's all fixing to come down. Rome is fixing to be moved out. Here is Jesus. He's going to be on the throne, and perhaps... Little old me, I'm going to have a part in the kingdom, and we're going to enforce the rule of Jesus around the earth. Now, we find out pretty quickly that, that things begin to go south real fast. Jesus began to speak these cryptic words that made them perhaps realize, man, this isn't like going down like we thought it was going to go down. He would say words like we find in Luke 20 and verse 17. But Jesus looked at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Interesting words. They're thinking, what? What's going on here? I, I, this isn't going like I, I thought it was going to go. And then things really did go bad to worse. Then came the Garden of Gethsemane. Then he was arrested. Then he was beaten. He was spat upon. And he would ultimately hang on a cross and be crucified. And he would die right there. This is why we find out when Cleopas was, was on the road, it said that he was, he was sad in his own heart. They had lost this sense of hope. But the question is, why, why? It's interesting to me, why did their hope seem to go down the toilet in just the span of one week? From that moment of Palm Sunday, when there were shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna, when there was power and authority, they were getting ready to ascend the throne in the land. Within a matter of a week, all their hope went right down the toilet. I think we need to see this. Our friend Cleopas, along with many of the others in that day, was poisoned by a deadly assumption. They were poisoned by a deadly assumption. And we get the keys to this deadly assumption in Luke 24 when we find out as they were leaving, they were, they were sad, but, but why were they sad? Well, verse 21 tells us why they were sad. He says, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. But we were what? Hoping that he was going to redeem Israel. Here's the truth of the matter, I think. He was hoping Jesus was going to redeem Israel from Roman oppression. And perhaps he was even hoping to be one of the leaders once Jesus established his kingdom in that place. So all the messages that Cleopas and many of the other disciples had heard, Jesus was preaching about a coming kingdom, but Cleopas was imagining and hearing of a different kingdom, one he had defined in his own mind. Now, as a result of the way he was thinking, now they were walking on this disappointing seven-mile journey home, wondering what happened, so sad it didn't work out. They're just going to go right back to their jobs and 
Just scratch it out. Now, I want you to really listen just for a second, because what I'm about to share with you are truths that I wish somebody had got in my face 20 years ago and grabbed me and told me what I'm about to tell you. Now, I'm going to tell you this, and you're going to say, well, that's so elementary. But listen, this was not elementary to me. If I could have just heard 2% about what I'm getting ready to share with you, I think my life could have been much more full of joy and peace. Because it's, it's important to note that hopelessness is typically preceded by wrong expectations in a false hope. Hopelessness is typically preceded by wrong expectations in a false hope. Now, we're invited into knowing Jesus, who is the true hope. Now, I think how we use the English language messes us up here for a moment. Because it's important for us to get that wishing and hoping are two entirely different words. Wishing and hoping are two entirely different words. A wish expresses a desire that is almost entirely unattainable. That's what a wish is. So you would use the word, you know, wish like this, man, I wish I could win the lottery, even though we don't believe in buying lottery tickets. I wish I could win the lottery, or man, I I wish I could find a genie in a bottle and rub it, and I can get three wishes fulfilled. So that's what a wish is. When you use the word wish, it's really hoping in something that is unattainable. But the word hope expresses something entirely different. Hope expresses a desire for a future that is actually attainable. It's not pie in the sky in the sweet by and by. It's actually rooted in what is very much attainable to us. Now, we go to the scripture, when most of us think of hope and faith, we, our, our, our minds immediately go right to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. Let's look at that together. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is the substance of things, what? Hope for the evidence of things not seen. Let's listen to that again. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Now, what this means is that faith brings a future hope into a present reality. Faith brings a future hope into a present reality. So hope in Greek is this cool word called elpizo, and it literally means to wait for salvation with joy and full confidence. To wait for salvation with full joy and full confidence. So it's not just a passive waiting, but the waiting comes with this thing called joy and full confidence. So the hope that we are invited into is something that's not only going to fill us with with courage and confidence that it's real and it's attainable and it's valid, it's going to happen, it's not a wish. With this hope comes joy. Now look at your husband or your wife and kids and smile real big. In other words, joy is God's strength inside of us. The joy of the Lord is our strength. It is our portion as sons and daughters to not walk around in gloom and despair and agony and defeat and deep, dark depression and excessive misery. 
That's not what we're called to. We're actually called to be a people full of joy. But where does the joy come from? The joy comes from a hope and born out of that hope that is seen through the lens of faith. Let's go a little deeper. What the hope we're invited into is not a wish. It's attainable and it's real. And that hope from that place of hope is going to come joy and courage. You see, this is why putting our hope in stuff, in stuff to bring love and peace and security is a wish and not a hope. See, we say, oh, I, 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 I hope this is going to happen, or I, or I hope my 401k is going to be good, or I, or I hope this person is not going to let me down, because inevitably that's just a wish, because what's a wish? A wish is something that's unattainable, that's not going to happen. So we put our hope in things that are not going to take care of us and bring us this love and peace and security that only this true, real hope does. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had moments in my life like Cleopas, and I know you guys have had as well. When things didn't turn out like I thought they were going to turn out in my life, and it left me discouraged, very disappointed. My hope, my heart was, had really lost hope, and it became sick. Have you had moments like that? In the doldrums of disappointment, discouragement, and hopelessness. Now, the problem, as I see it now that I didn't see then, the problem was this. Now, listen, listen, just tune into this for a second. The problem was my hope was in what I assumed Jesus was or was not doing with my life and not in Jesus himself. My hope was what I assumed what Jesus was doing with my life or was not doing with my life and not in Jesus himself. I remember 14 years old, Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, just a few blocks away from Copacabana Beach. We were there on an outreach, and we were ministering to just thousands of kids. It was unbelievable. But as a kid, I can, I can remember the moment, all these little kids around me, and I sensed the dream of God in my heart. I want to do this for the rest of my life. I felt the call of God in ministry. People, say, people will ask you, when did you get the calling to go into ministry? I can tell you it was that moment right then. I knew that I was going to give my life to serving Jesus forever. God dropped the dream of God right in my heart. Now, unbeknownst to me at the time, I began to do something that was not appropriate. I began to define that dream. I began to write out in my natural mind a definition to the dream of God in my life based on my certain situation and my circumstances. In other words, I knew that, all right, this is this dream. I'm, I'm like sensing the call of God in my life. Therefore, I'm going to do this forever. I'm going to come back to Brazil. I'm never going to leave Brazil. I'm going to be on the mission field forever. In fact, in fact if, if you had to put me on a polygraph test 20 years ago, I would have passed it with flying colors that what I would be doing right now in my life. I would have passed it because I was convinced that I and my wife and my family would be sitting on the banks of the Amazon River somewhere, reaching some unreached people group with a mosquito net over my, over my head, trying to type the language and translate it. I just, I was so convinced. But the, but the, but the problem was I, I wrote my whole definition for my entire Christian walk around what I perceived in that moment. 
You see, like the Cleopas, I had poisoned myself with this assumption of what God was doing based on what he was doing in my life at the moment and not in the person of Jesus. And I began to write the definition. You know what that is, right? That is, in effect, the clay on the potter's wheel instructing the potter on what to make. It's the clay telling the potter. Isn't that like an absurd way of thinking, right? The clay should never tell the potter what to make. What's the job of the clay? To sit there and be still and get used to the spinning and get used to the fingerprints of God that's making what he wants to make. But the clay has no idea The clay has no idea what the clay is becoming, but the Father knows exactly what he's making. So you see what happens is that we get the dream and we begin to define the dream, and God has not called us to be a dictionary. Give up being a glossary. I tried it. It doesn't work. When I begin to define what God is doing in my natural mind, it's going to leave me in a very sad position. So here's the principle I want to leave you in this moment. Live the dream, not the definition, for the dream is sourced in the dream giver. Live out of the dream of God. Don't live the definition. You live in the dream because the dream is directly tied back to the dream giver. And we get this because the word teaches us that our, 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 our eyes have never seen and our ears have never heard the things that God has prepared for us and for, and for those who love him. So in my very attempt to take the dream of God and I begin to write the definition, I'm going to lose right then because there's no way for me to possibly know. But for every sentence of the definition I begin to write, the more I paint myself in a corner of what God is actually doing, because I'm going to be wrong at some level. I might be 10% wrong. I might be 15% wrong. I might be 90% wrong. But I'm going to be wrong because we're not called to know this. God has called us to himself and not to a definition. And he's introducing us to these things. I'm reminded of Abram. In the days of old, you can go back and read this on your own, Genesis chapter 12, God finds Abram in the land of Ur. And I saw this about a month ago, and it really struck my heart because God goes to Abram and says, Abram, I'm going I'm to call you away from your land, your father, and your people, and I'm going to take you to a land that I am going to show you. Now, when I would first read this passage, the only thing I would look at is, oh, man, what, where are we going? What's this land that you're going to show us? What are we going to do in this land? We're going to build a kingdom. We're going to do all these great things. I was, like, preoccupied with the land, but I don't believe the land was the point in what God was doing. The point in what God was saying to Abram was, I will show you. It was not so much about the land. It was about the one who was going to show him the land. It was the journey with God, the relational journey with God, the friend of God, Abraham. And then when you see that, you're like, oh, God, then, then what are you like? What are you like really after then? So you're not really trying to get me to do something or to maneuver me in some orchestrated plan. The whole thing is really about me just knowing you. So like Cleopas, though, we all face moments like this. We all face these awakening moments, and, and we begin to realize, what's, 
What's going on? Because we all do this, don't we? Every one of us is guilty of this. We all hear God saying things, and we all begin to write the definition of of what God is going to do. And what it ultimately does, it does every time, it brings disillusionment and disappointment. And we face these things. And I promise you this, guys, listen. How we navigate disillusionment and disappointment is critical in how we live this life. What we do in moments of discouragement and disappointment and despair will define how we live this life. They're actually opportunities for us. Because here's the truth. When we are tested or we're being squeezed, because what happens is when you're being tested and squeezed, you begin to deal with disappointment and discouragement. But what it does, it's actually a gift for us because it, it exposes where I'm putting this false hope in. Because as things don't begin to work out and I'm beginning to experience disappointment and discouragement, what's being reflected back to me are things that I'm actually putting my hope in and my false hope in because those things are letting me down and it's a disparity to what real hope is because real hope, as we'll see in a minute, never disappoints. And that can be a wake-up call. So what happens when we're getting squeezed, we're getting tested, things began to go not according to the definition that I wrote or you wrote about your life. We're experiencing these, and they are great opportunities for us to walk in an Acts 319 moment. Do you want an Acts 319 moment? You're thinking, well, what's Acts 319? I'm glad you asked. Acts 319. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Hear that. In other words, when God shows us something, when we begin to realize that I've put hope in something that's false and not lasting, I've actually put hope in something that I'm wishing for and it's not accurate and it's let me down and that begins to get exposed, what should I immediately do? What should we do in this moment right now? Lord, I'm sorry. Lord, I repent for caving into fear because I've just watched my 401k lose 80% of its value in the last month. Now, that's a bad thing. That's a horrible thing. Nobody wants that. But when these things happen, it, 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 it reveals, oh, Lord, was I, really, was, I, was I really putting my hope in that to, so I can have a good retirement? And God begins to show us that unto this opportunity to get to repent and to return back to what we should actually be putting our hope into. When hope is in the right place, joy is always present. Listen, when our hope is in the right place, joy is always present. And the opposite is true too. That if we are ex- we, if we're experiencing a lack of joy. I don't mean a fake happiness that's predicated on circumstance. I mean, when we're experiencing a lack of joy in our daily life, it should be an indicator to us that we are placing our hope in things that are false and not lasting. And this is not just true for us as individuals, opportunities for us to grow and draw close to a living hope. It's also what God is doing across the body of Christ. I believe one of the intended reasons for the predicted birth pains we are in right now, right? Jesus said that in the last days, all these things are going to happen, one of which is pestilence, wars, rumors of wars, famines, all these things are going to happen like 
birth pangs, and they're going to increase with intensity. Part of the reason, one of the reasons these things are happening is to purify the church, is to shake everything that can be shaken. In other words, when shakings come, dead things begin to fall off, useless things begin to pass away, and we begin to draw close to who is the real hope, that God's not up there. He's not a mean father saying, how can I afflict everybody? No, he's, he's, he's actually going to expose to every one of us around the world, simultaneously right now, I'll guarantee you, around the world, the entire body of Christ is realizing, oh my goodness, I put my hope in stuff that I shouldn't be hoping in. And you see, the, yes, that's exactly right. Now is your opportunity for an Acts 319 moment. Repent and return right back to me so you can access true hope. And then comes joy and courage and confidence. That's what the birth pang is all about. He's coming back for a church without spot or blemish. When Jesus steps foot on the planet, it's not going to be to a lethargic, compromised, weak, impotent church, but it's going to be a church that's mighty in God with signs and wonders and power. It's because God has purified us and purified you and purified me through these moments of being exposed. Lord, where are we putting our hope? Because I tell you, as Jesus closed the lilies of the field and he, and, he, and he takes care of the birds of the air, don't you think he's able to take care of you and take care of me? That's what he wants to get us to. That's the precious thing that hope brings to us. Because life can be complicated. My family likes to put together jigsaw puzzles. And if you've heard me at all, you know I have a strong aversion to jigsaw puzzles. I just don't like them. Here's why. You know why I don't like them? Well, I'm a little impatient, but I don't like them. But when, when, when you take a box of, of a 500-piece jigsaw puzzle and you dump it out on the table in front of me, my immediate reaction is, is, is this is impossible. It really is. Because you see all these pieces, 500 pieces, oh, dear Jesus, I got to put this together. I would rather be put in a corner and stuck with a sharp stick. But I got to put all this together. But, I, but, but I, have, I have learned from watching my wife and watching my kids, there are things to do with a jigsaw puzzle that makes things less complicated. There's actually two things that you, that you sort of got to do. Number, number one is you got to look at the top of the box. You got to see the finished product. So when I see all these messed up pieces, I get discouraged, but then when I see the finished product, what it's going to look like when it's all together, it brings courage to my soul. Oh, there's actually, there's, 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 there's actually a plan for all these pieces, and it's all going to be beautiful. Well, and, then, then, and then the next thing that I was taught to do when you're looking at an overwhelming jigsaw puzzle is, is you got to find the four corner pieces. You just got to find the four corner pieces. Now, those aren't so difficult to find because guess what corner pieces have? They have, they have two like flat edges. So even in like the midst of 500 or 1,000 pieces, I can sort through them and, and, and I can find the corner pieces and I can find out exactly where they go. So then I have two things going for me that's going to deal with the overwhelming complexity of 500 or 1,000 pieces in front of me. I know what the finished product is and I have four corner pieces that's going to guide me and I can interpret every other piece in light of those two factors. You're saying, what does that have to do with what you're talking about? Because when we're in seasons where disappointment, discouragement, when we're in seasons of a pandemic, we need to be able to interpret things rightly. 
You don't have to figure out every piece. That's a daunting task. But all of us can figure out, even the youngest among us, even the one who hates jigsaw puzzles the most, can find four corner pieces. And for me, and you can find out what yours are, but my four corner pieces that helps me to interpret every event in my life is simply these four things. One is the knowledge of God. That's one corner piece. I got to know God. I got to know God. I don't just need to know God in, in, in every single way because that's impossible, but I can know certain things about God. Moses prayed, Lord, teach me your ways that I might know you. So if I have a knowledge of God's ways, it's going to help me interpret the world around me. My second corner piece is this big fancy word called eschatology. It's how I understand the end times, how I understand what's on the top of the puzzle box. If I understand what the finished product is going to look like and I understand the ways of God, then I can begin to make sense of the craziness that's in this world because it's not so crazy after all because it's actually all fitting in to what God is doing that's revealed to us in his word. It's how I understand the end times, my eschatology and the knowledge of God. The third piece, the third corner piece is not so popular, but it's this, it's, it's the role of suffering in my own life. The role of trials and tribulations. That I can then interpret hardship and difficulty. Not that God is trying to hurt me. Or not that just the devil is trying to kill me. There may be an aspect of that. But there's, there's a higher dimension of understanding trials and tribulations. That through suffering and difficulty, God is perfecting things in you and in me. And here's the truth. Paul would say it this way. Lord, I want to know you in the power of your resurrection. Every one of us would sign up for that all day. But also in what? The fellowship of your suffering. Because we don't like this. But through the place of suffering, we get to know Jesus in ways that we can never get to know him apart from it. I don't like that. My flesh doesn't like that, but my spirit loves that. So I, it's the knowledge of God. It's, it's my eschatology. It's, 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 it's understanding the role of suffering. And my last corner piece is this, that I must learn to abide, John 15. It's in abiding in Jesus, right? Staying close to the vine, which makes everything begin to make sense as I walk this out with him. Does that, does that I guess my mind's a little warped, but that's how it works for me. That if I can have those four pieces in place, then I can interpret everything that's going on in the world. It's not chaos. It's not necessarily order. It's a word called chaotic. It's like nature. It's chaotic. It's the mixture of chaos and order. We see it in nature all the time. You see a tornado. You see a hurricane. You see a tsunami. It looks like this is chaos, but it really isn't chaos. There's actual order taking place. There's actual laws of the universe and physics that are at play all the time. It's like a, it's a, it's a chaotic environment, and this is how God operates and works. All right, let's try to land the plane. Get your jigsaw puzzle out because here it is. Our hope is alive and living. Listen to this. 1 Peter 1.3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a, everybody say it, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. True hope cannot exist apart from true faith in the living hope. 
other words, that's how hope works. Hope cannot exist. True hope cannot exist apart from true faith in the living hope, which is the person of Jesus Christ. And this is what we call gospel. This is what we call the good news. Jesus blazed the way to God and he himself became the way. Jesus blazed the trail to God and he himself became the way. When Jesus said in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life, he said, I am the way. I'm not going to point you to religion or traditions of man or, or here's the 10 things that you need to do to be okay. You said, no, I'm actually the way. I'm not giving you an instruction book with a how-to list. I'm saying, it's me. I'm the way. It's actually in knowing me. That's the living hope. You get this? Jesus blazed the way to God, but he truly became the way himself, and we're called into knowing him as our living hope. This hope is an anchor for us. Hebrews 6, 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. From the moment we begin to build ships and sail the sea, the, the, the anchor became a symbol of hope. The word anchor literally means to make secure or a safeguard or something held firmly. An anchor, in principle, we used to have a boat, so I, I used to always be kind of fascinated with the anchor because it had these like hooks on the end of it, and, you know, had these like things. So what's that for? Because you would throw out the anchor, and you would begin to move the boat a little bit, and then the and then the anchor would find something on the ground to hold onto, that the boat would not drift. You see, it can't be dislodged when it's holding tight. Our anchor is in the person of Jesus, and it can't be dislodged even when storms come. It's a solid foundation forever and always. The world, the ways that seem right to us, is a dislodged anchor. And a dislodged anchor will always drive you and me into an unsettled life. If our anchor is not planted properly... The end result will always be an unsettled life. You'll always be somebody who struggles with double-mindedness, unstable in all of our ways, because our anchor is not lodged properly. Because we try so often, don't we, to put our anchor in so many things. We want to hook it into certain people or certain personalities. It might be mom or dad or employer or brother or a friend or a president or a political party. Or we're going to put our anchor in fame or our money, but we learn that each will always in time disappoint you and it will leave us empty. When we do this, we face the roller coaster and the whiplash of disappointment and discouragement all the time with no hope of relief. But yet Jesus, in moments like this in all of our life, is inviting us in to believe this. Listen, it's a hope that actually doesn't disappoint. Can you believe that? Wouldn't it be something to really realize that we're invited to live in a way not to be disappointed? Romans 5.5, 5, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. That that's, what being, that's what we are being invited into, a hope that doesn't disappoint. But it's not a hope in stuff. It's actually a hope in the person of Jesus Christ himself 
that abiding in him and becoming intimate with him and growing in the knowledge of God, you're going to experience a joy and a courage that's going to be a bulwark inside of you that no matter what storm comes or whatever hits, you can do it with courage and you can do it with joy because your anchor is rooted in the person of Jesus behind the veil. It's no wonder the hymn writer would write these kind of words. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground, everything else is sinking sand. The beauty of the story of Cleopas was not a God that was willing to punish him for putting his hope in something false. It was actually to lead him to the revelation of the truth. In verse 31 of Luke 24, it says, Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scripture to us? They discovered it was Jesus all alone. And Jesus is the one who actually interprets the scriptures for us through revelation and our eyes being open. You see, it's not a head thing. It's a heart thing. Our joy in studying scripture and your joy in studying the Bible is not to win Bible trivial pursuit. It's not to win Bible pictionary. But is to know not facts and figures, but to know a person. And that person is Jesus. Around here, we, we pray so often, Ephesians 1.18, that I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. That's only when our heart is impacted that our eyes can be opened to recognize that our hope is in the person of Jesus. And that's who we're called to know. Amen? So I want to just conclude by giving you five questions to think about yourself, maybe engage your husband, your wife, your kids this afternoon or during the week. You don't have to write these down. They're actually online. You can go to mynewbridge.church and scroll down, and you can actually see the message notes. It's mynewbridge.church and scroll down. But here are the, here are, here are the questions. Number one, think of an example when you use the word hope when it should have been wish. Just think of an example, how you normally talk. When do you kind of use the word hope when you really should be using the word wish. It's okay to use the word wish, but don't, com don't confuse it with hope. Number two, what is a dream God has put in your heart? And ask him to show you a definition you wrote that was not necessarily from him. Or just go back in your memory, like I did when I was 14 years old in the streets of Brazil. And God put a dream in my heart. And he showed me the definition that I wrote. Can I just tell you something? I wrote the definition, and I, and I confused it with the dream, and I clung to the definition more than I did the dream. I clung to the definition more than I did the dream giver because I, I knew what God was doing, but that's not what he was doing. And, and what that would ultimately do was take me on years and years and years 
of what God was doing was not what I had defined. And I held so much to the definition that through situation and circumstance that God would peel off every finger that I was holding to that definition. I was gripping so tightly. And every time God had to peel off a finger, there was, a, there was disappointment, there was discouragement, there was despair, frustration, and all that. And it was a painful number of years that God would teach me that lesson when I could have just not wrote the definition, just trusted God with how he was going to orchestrate my life and not cling to the definition, but cling to him. Maybe you've done that in your life. Maybe things aren't working out how you thought or it wasn't the job, wasn't the place. You find yourself in a place that you didn't see yourself in five or ten years ago. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, it's because you took a liberty you should have never taken like I did and you wrote the definition. Let it be an Acts 319 moment. Let it, let it show you some things so you can return and repent and come back to Jesus and say, Lord, I, I get it. My eye hasn't seen, my ear hasn't heard. And here's, here's the funny thing. It's actually better. What he has for you is actually better than your definition. It's actually more full of joy and courage than anything you could have imagined for yourself. Our God who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than you or I could ever think or imagine. He's actually better at it than you are. He's a better dictionary than you are. He's a better glossary than I am. What he's writing for your life is going to exceed your highest expectations, but not in the way you think it is. And it may not even be associated with big crowds and big money and big cars. It may be the priceless things of love and joy and peace. That's in your heart and courage. Number three, during this squeeze, what are areas you have been putting false hope in? I know in my own life right now, I'm realizing that I've put my hope in some things that's being shaken right now. Some things that I thought were going to happen now are not going to happen in the way I thought they were going to happen because I was looking at those things to provide certain things. <laughs> that's probably not going to happen that way. And God showed me, he said, oh, oh, Lord, yeah, I... I was doing that. I'm sorry, Jesus. I trust you. Forgive me, God, for looking to that or looking to this. Or help me just to fix my eyes on you to look at you. Number four, when was the last encounter you had with Jesus that caused your heart to burn? When was the last moment that you can remember that Jesus was so close? He was revealing his word to you personally. And like with Cleopas and his friend, that their, that their hearts burned inside of them. When was the last time? I don't think it, it's meant to be those far, that, that far apart from each other. I think we can have those every day as we walk with Jesus. They may vary in intensity. Sometimes it's a level one, sometimes it's a level five or a level ten. But I believe every day our, our heart can burn as Jesus reveals the scripture to us. When was the last time? Number five, last thing. I want to encourage you this week to read John 15, 1 through 8 and discuss what abiding has to do with true hope. Read John 15, 1 through 8, and just ask yourself this question. You may write on it, pontificate on it, journal on it, that what does John 15, 1 through 8 have to do with true hope? What does abide do with true hope? Amen? Let me just pray for us, and I'm going to give just a few quick announcements, and then we'll be done. Lord, thank you, Jesus. Lord, you have been so long-suffering with me. As I look back over decades of just following you, your patience with me has been so good. Even, Lord, when I was acting like a spoiled child with temper tantrums and not understanding, you were so patient, so lovingly leading me, directing me. 
allowing circumstances and situations to strip off all false hopes, all assumptions and presumptions of writing a definition that you weren't doing. Even how it poisoned my own soul at times. You were so good, God, and you showed me these things, not to hurt me, to harm me, but to bring me, God, into the knowledge of Jesus, you're it. You're it. There's, there's no other place to go. We say it so often. We mean it. Jesus, knowing you is the destination. Right now, Lord, wherever we find ourselves at, at, at home and just wherever you are right now, just take just a moment and shut your physical eyes and, and open your eyes of faith and just look right at Jesus. And he knows you. He knows your weakness. He knows our frame is frail. And as a famous author once said, Art Katz, he said that sometimes God has to disqualify us before he qualifies us. Sometimes we have to get to the place where we realize, well, I can't do anything, Lord. And you're right there say, yes, you can, but I can do everything through you. Don't lean to yourself, the ways that seem right to you, the ways of the world. Just lean to me. Just lean to me because I am good. And I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Holy Spirit, touch us right now, God. Fill us with hope of resurrection inside of us. Come, Holy Spirit. Bring the revelation that, Jesus, that you are the living hope. We love you. We honor you and bless you this morning. In the strong and master's name of Jesus. And all of us said together, amen. Amen.